Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we welcome two women independent journalists, towering figures, in fact, in the independent and alternative press here in the U.S. that should be household names. First, we welcome Manar Adlai. She's the founder and editor-in-chief, as well as the CEO of Mint Press News, mintpressnews.com. We'll talk about censorship, deplatforming, and control of information with big tech and more, and we'll specifically talk about Manar Adley's experience reporting about and being censored around the Israeli occupation of Palestine. Later in the program, independent reporter Ann Garrison joins us, contributing editor to Black Agenda Report, as well as a contributor to The Gray Zone and Pacifica Radio. Ann Garrison talks to us about how the U.S. has exploited ethnicity and clam to establish hegemony in the Horn of Africa. Today on the Project Censored Show, two independent journalists exposing censorship, corruption, hegemony, and more. Stay tuned to another episode of the Project Censored Show. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today in the first segment, we are delighted to welcome the force behind mintpressnews.com, the founder, CEO, and editor-in-chief of Mint Press News, Manar Adley. Manar is also a regular speaker on responsible journalism, sexism, neoconservatism within the media and journalism startups. Manar started her career as an independent multimedia journalist covering Midwest and national politics while focusing on civil liberties and social justice issues posting her reporting and exclusive interviews on her blog, Mint Press, which she later turned into Mint Press. She turned Mint Press into the global news source it is today. In 2009, Adley also became the first American woman to wear the hijab to anchor report the news in American media. Mintpressnews.com is the website. And Manar, welcome back to the Project Censored show. Thank you for having me, Mickey. It's always good to catch up with you, and I know you and I have been trying to catch up actually since last year, but we're between so many things that you're doing, and we're all all busy doing fantastic work, I think. I'd like for you to remind our listeners exactly what Mint Press News really focuses on, and of course, listeners are probably more familiar with Alan McLeod, who's one of your senior writers, but again, you're the force behind Mint Press News, so I want to tell folks why Mint Press News and what do you do that others are not. So Mint Press News is, I mean, we're, we're over a decade old now, but we're one of the leading independent watchdog journalism outlets in the United States. And our coverage focuses on the special interests that influence policies at home and abroad. And so we really take a look at the think tanks and the powerful money interests and the billionaire class, the oligarchy, the big tech companies. <laughs> the lobby groups, the people and entities that are working behind the scenes to influence war narratives, to influence policies, war policies and doctrines that bring us to where we are today in our, you know, world landscape. And I started Mint Press because, you know, I'm a Palestinian American journalist and I actually lived under Israeli occupation and apartheid for about four years as a preteen and a little bit through my teenage years. And it was there that I witnessed firsthand um, major human rights abuses. I lived under a police state. I lived under apartheid. 
And it was really interesting living in such brutality and witnessing such grave human rights abuses only to come back to the United States to witness how the mainstream corporate media presented Israel as the beacon of democracy and human rights when it was clearly a human rights violator and engaging in apartheid and colonization of Palestinian land. And so at a very young age, I saw how the media would flip a media narrative. It would flip an entire story to make the American public support U.S. aid and military aid to Israel. And so it was in those early years that I really truly began to realize just how powerful these special interest groups, the Israel lobby, and how they control mainstream media narratives, how they've infiltrated mainstream corporate media. And a couple of months after we had moved back from Palestine, 9-11 happened. And it was once again at a very young age, while kids were busy worrying about sex, drugs, partying, I was glued to my TV screen. And I saw how the media specialized in beating the drums of war. And not much has changed, Mickey. I'm not that young anymore, but not much has changed in the decades that have passed. And so since then, it has been my MO to really expose the inner workings of the military class and how they support war and how these weapons manufacturers profit off of the blood of millions of people around the world to occupy, to exploit. And so that's what we do at Mint Press, and that's how Mint Press got started. Coming out of the so-called war on terrorism or war of terror in Iraq, Afghanistan, throughout the entire Middle East, the proxy wars with Saudi Arabia and Yemen, and of course the Israeli occupation of Palestine. Mint Press News has been on the radar of Project Censored for a very long time because you specialize in covering the very type of story with the perspective that is nearly non-existent pretty much in the corporate press and even in a lot of the Western press and the BBC and so on. And so Mint Press News really fills a huge hole in that regard and shines a light into this dark place that the corporate media, the West, can't seem to look at. And you, Manar Adley, one of the areas that you focus upon, and you've already touched on that, is the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement, Palestinian liberation, the ending of apartheid and occupation of Palestine by Israel. And you have, of course, been targeted for that. Mint Press has been targeted for that in general. I was wondering if you could share a little bit of information about that so people understand exactly what you're up against when it comes to these kinds of topics as a journalist. Israel is receiving so much military aid and weaponry from the United States to the tune of millions upon millions of dollars each year. And the only way for that to be justified is for the media to dehumanize Palestinians and to showcase that Israel is this beacon of human rights and democracy, which it is not. It's an apartheid state. And so one of the first initiatives at Mint Press was to kind of fill that void of coverage of what was truly happening on the ground in Palestine and to describe Israel for what it is, an apartheid state. And so since we have done that, we've actually become the target of major, major attack campaigns and smear campaigns. And one of those attack campaigns came directly to our Wikipedia page. And we learned that Israel lobby groups and Israeli settler groups that are tied to the current Israeli government were editing our Wikipedia page to kind of paint Mint Press as anti-Semitic. And so they've done that throughout the years. And a lot of these Israel lobby groups 
and think tanks that are funded by the state of Israel and by weapons manufacturers that profit off of the Israeli occupation of Palestine and its apartheid policies and its colonization and all of the bombing sprees that Israel commits in Gaza. They work with think tanks like the Atlantic Council, which is also funded by NATO. And so these think tanks have partnered up with Facebook and social media tech giants to suppress and algorithmically target and suppress and sometimes completely remove some of our content on social media pages. And so since the 2016 elections, when we saw this relationship deepen between these weapon manufacturer funded think tanks like the Atlantic Council and Facebook, also the uh, Anti-Defamation League, which has partnered up with YouTube, they've actually targeted posts that criticize Israeli occupation and showcase any posts of like Palestinians protesting or being abused by soldiers or Israeli settlers targeting Palestinians, they'll actually remove those posts under the guise of, you know, targeting anti-Semitism. And so thousands upon thousands of these kinds of posts have been removed, including our very own at Mitt Press. And some of the cartoons by Carlos Latouf have also been removed from these social media platforms where he's depicting Israeli snipers shooting at, targeting and shooting and killing in cold blood medics, unarmed medics and disabled protesters. And even those cartoons would get labeled as anti-Semitic or harmful to Facebook's terms of service. And then we also saw that Facebook created a free speech court, and it's led by Israel's state censor, Emmy Palmore. And so there's no question that the Israeli state and its you know, lobby partners in the United States have an agenda to target Palestinian dissent and any sort of watchdog journalism coverage of the Israeli state and its actions. And so we've been a target of those groups in particular, but we've also been targeted by NATO-funded think tanks and also NewsGuard, which is also funded by weapons manufacturers and some of the likes of the neoconservative class, the Bush era crazies. NewsGuard has also targeted press coverage by deranking us um, as well. And so we've seen a huge drop in our analytics when it comes to our traffic by 70%. And then also through Google's Project OWL, which was launched shortly after the 2016 elections as well, that was in particular a project that was created, Project OWL, to target independent journalism outlets like Mint Press. And we now know that it is led by neoconservatives who supported the war in Iraq, who supported U.S. intervention in Syria, who supported the war in Libya, who have no problem with the U.S. sending and selling weapons to Saudi Arabia to commit genocide in Yemen. And so there's a clear agenda that whether it's the occupation of Palestine by Israel or the war in Iraq or you know the, the overall war on terror, whatever it may be, it's the same people. And a lot of them come from the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. So it's not like it's just like one side is better than the other. It's coming from both angles to target dissent. And it's all under the guise of fighting fake news. And it's weaponizing also anti-Semitism to stifle free speech. That's just like a small explanation of what we've experienced at Mint Press. As well as PayPal. 
that's the most recent attack that we've experienced in the last year. We actually have from leaked emails from this British journalist, Paul Mason. He did an email exchange with somebody from British intelligence, but he basically sent one of our articles by Alan McLeod about the Kiev Independent. So the Kiev, and I'll, I'll tell you how we got banned from PayPal, but basically that we published this article going over the history of the Kiev Independent, which purports that it's independent, but in fact, it's actually funded by all these Western governments, including the British government and NATO. And so, so Paul Mason sent this email saying, what do we do about this? And then there was like an exchange, something about like getting us off of PayPal. And shortly after we were banned off of PayPal, I couldn't access our PayPal account for Mint Press. And within the same month, we had our GoFundMe campaigns removed. We have two GoFundMe campaigns, one for Mint Press and one for Behind the Headlines. And both of them were removed for misconduct. And I had contacted both PayPal and GoFundMe to ask, what is the misconduct? Nobody at either platform responded. And granted, we've had this PayPal account for over 10 years. And this PayPal account was used to pay freelancers and also to receive donations to our website. And we would receive on average a couple thousand dollars worth of donations from PayPal each month. And then the GoFundMe campaigns, we had accumulated, I would say over, over $50,000 in donations. Luckily, we didn't have any balances in either account. So we had already accessed that money, but all in all, it was clear that there was a concerted effort to get us removed. And this was also happening when the DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, was announcing their crackdown on independent anti-war journalism under the guise of fighting Russian propaganda. It was like all at once. And your senior writer, Dr. Alan McLeod, whom we speak with on occasion, PayPal actually went after his personal account. They banned Mint Press and then they banned Alan McLeod's personal account as well. It was a clear target of Alan McLeod and his coverage. This is pretty remarkable. And if folks don't know about this, you should definitely look more into it. It's very real. This isn't the stuff of conspiracy theory. These are things that are actually happening to independent sources like Mint Press News that dare to tell the truth about American empire and really try to tell the stories and give a platform to voices in Palestine and other parts of the world where people are victims of U.S. hegemony in general. We're speaking with Manar Adley, the CEO and founder of Mint Press News, and we're going to continue our conversation about Mint Press News and the work of Manar after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today in this segment, we are speaking with Manar Adley, the CEO and founder of Mint Press News, editor-in-chief at mintpressnews.com. Manar, before the break, you were talking about the many, many efforts to censor, to silence, ostracize your work as a journalist, related work around Israeli occupation of Palestine in particular, 
And, you know, one thing comes to mind is that while what's happening here is a, certainly a, a metaphoric sense of shooting the messenger from the many different sources that you outlined for us moments ago, you also, of course, covered a very tragic and more literal sense of that with Shireen Abu Akleh and Israel's war on journalism. Could you remind our listeners a little bit of this to show there's a metaphoric and then literal connection in terms of shooting the messenger and in the kind of work that you're doing? Yeah, in the last year, I mean, Israel has systematically targeted journalists. And one of the most iconic journalists that they targeted was Shireen Abu Akleh, who was an Al Jazeera correspondent who covered Israel's occupation of Palestine for decades. In fact, I actually grew up watching her when I lived in Palestine. You know, we used to see her on our TV screens every single day. And we all, especially as young girls watching her in the occupation and living under war, we would see her and we would all think about how we wanted to be like her, you know, because she she technically became the, the face, the icon of Palestinian resistance, you know, a female speaking up about the war and just reporting the facts. And we all remember her sign-off, you know, Shirin Abu Akleh, Al Jazeera, Palestine. I grew up watching her. Every Palestinian watched her. And so when Israel assassinated her, and we later learned that the sniper targeted her, they wanted her out. They wanted to kill her. They wanted to murder her. It was devastating. It was really devastating. The entire Palestinian community, literally millions of people came out to her funeral. It was like mourning your mother's death. And it was just so crazy to see the images of her funeral because Palestinians were trying to like hold her coffin and Israeli settlers and Israeli soldiers stormed the funeral. They were attacking Palestinians while they were holding her coffin and they were just trying to bring her into the church. And by the way, she was a Palestinian Christian, which is like another aspect of the whole story because Palestinian Christians are so erased from the whole narrative of Palestine because. Israel doesn't want Christians in America to know that they're killing Palestinian Christians. They're occupying Palestinian Christian land while using evangelical Christianity to rewrite the whole narrative about their own religion to justify Israel's occupation of Palestine. And so even at the funeral, Israel tried to segregate people between, you know, from their faiths, you know, whether people were Muslims or Christians. But in fact, in Palestine, Muslims and Christians are like side by side living together and enduring Israel's occupation. But it's exactly that story that keeps us inspired to keep going and to keep her legacy alive, to continue to speak up and report the truth about what's happening there. I mean, look at what's happening right now in Palestine, where we have Israeli pogroms, settlers that are armed, and they are being escorted peacefully by Israeli soldiers, and they're putting fire to these homes Palestinian homes, they're unleashing dogs in Hebron to attack Palestinian school children. They're tearing down Palestinian schools for elementary kids to build settlements. They're attacking children and kidnapping them. I sometimes share the story of this boy, his name is Muhammad Abu Khdir, and he was my neighbor in Palestine. And eight years ago or so, he was kidnapped by Israeli soldiers and he was doused in gasoline and they lit him on fire. And the boy was only 16 years old. And so these are the stories of Palestinians living, not just under the occupation, but through these pogroms that are unleashed on the streets and they're attacking people. They're attacking innocent bystanders. 
they're going to Palestinian schools and setting them on fire. They're attacking children. They're kidnapping them. They're stopping people on the streets and shooting them. And they're escorted by Israeli soldiers. I mean, we learn about like inclusivity here in the U.S. and racial justice and human rights and treat your neighbor how you want to be treated. And yet here we are funding and arming an apartheid regime that enables this kind of disgusting and inhumane and barbaric behavior. If these people acted this way in any state here in the United States, they'd be put to prison. And even today, a law was just passed by the Israeli government that the state would not fund any treatment of Palestinian prisoners. And this is what's happening in Palestine every single day. And these are the most recent things that Palestinians face in in Jerusalem and Hebron and Nablus. And when Palestinians stand up and they resist, they're criticized about how they resist. Anything that Palestinians do is hyper-focused on, but in fact, they're just like in survival mode, trying to survive these, these attacks on their land, their culture, their religion, their homes being taken away, their education, you name it. Everything that makes a human live, whether it's their water, food, shelter, is being taken away from them. Which brings me to my next point, which is you see a lot of the pro-Palestine movements here in the United States and even in in Great Britain. I just came back from Britain. A lot of the pro-Palestine groups are being co-opted by very establishment liberal Zionist groups who have now taken control over the conversation about Palestine. And people like myself are getting disinvited under the guise of, you know, being called, you know, anti-Semitic you know, because we're we're extremely critical of the state of Israel and because we support Palestinians' right to resist, which is their right under international law. But a lot of these up-and-coming pro-Palestine groups, they are partnering up with like think tanks and DC people, and they've co-opted the narrative. And it's because they, they're trying to tackle BDS, the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions movement, because it is making Israel take a hit financially. And also because they don't want any of the movement, anyone in the movement to support Palestinian resistance. They just want to keep the conversations about peace, you know, these theatrics that they keep going to continue versus actual solutions, which is Palestinians have a right to resist and Israel needs to stop with these settlements and they need to abide to international law. Manar, it's interesting that there's no shortage of support for Ukrainian resistance against an illegal invasion from Russia, yet there's just silence around what happens with Palestine here in the U.S. You yourself, who speak out about these issues, you're often invited as a speaker at events. You were supposed to host and moderate an event discussing anti-boycott divestment sanctions laws here, ironically, in the United States, laws that clamp down on First Amendment rights. Abby Martin actually successfully sued the state of Georgia over this when she was censored at one of our media literacy conferences a number of years ago. You were censored behind the scenes last year at an event trying to address this. Yeah, I was invited to speak on a panel about the anti-boycott divestment and sanctions laws that are being passed across the country, which makes it illegal to boycott Israeli companies. Can you imagine? It's illegal to boycott Israeli companies. Where is the free speech in that? And I was invited to speak alongside Peter Baynard, the Jewish Currents editor at large. And there was another woman who was invited, and she was actually the director, Susu Al-Baba. And she's the director of this new film called Boycott, which is really ironic because 
you know, you would think these people, and they all are in support of Palestinian rights, and they speak out about Israel's occupation of Palestine. And this woman who's Palestinian, she directed this film called Boycott. That was the whole premise of the panel. And I was actually going to be the moderator. And they ended up voting to have me removed off of the panel as a moderator because they were all contacted by a Matthew Heller, who is this kind of troikiest pro-Ukraine, anti-Russia, anti-Iran, anti-Syria, anti-resistance person who writes and attacks Palestinians and other anti-war groups. If you're critical of NATO, then you're on the hot seat with him. But anyways, it was just a really bizarre situation. And they ended up agreeing with Matthew Heller and having me removed off of the panel, which was really ironic because Peter Baynar is like this Jewish white American man. And Susu al-Baba, who is Palestinian and who did direct this film, she is cozying up with all of these J Street individuals in Washington, D.C. And so this is what I mean by the movement has been co-opted. It's like you'll find people who are promoting the idea of like critiquing Israel of its occupation of Palestine, but they only allow you to have the conversation to a certain point where you can't go as far as talking about Palestinian liberation and resistance. It's all through the means of like keeping the conversations through like the think tanks. And so it's just really, really disturbing. But as we know, the liberal establishment have done that really, really well. We saw that work out really well during the Bernie Sanders movement. You know, he kind of co-opted the leftist movement and brought a lot of people back into voting for Hillary Clinton and supporting the Democratic Party. It's like the same concept with the pro-Palestine movement. And so they ended up pulling me off because I speak very highly of Palestinians' right to resist. And they removed me under the guise of, you know, I'm anti-Semitic, which is another irony because I'm Palestinian and we are Semitic people. Just another example of, of how that is weaponized. So they're very particular about who is allowed to speak about Palestinian human rights and who is not. And it seems like they're pushing and promoting the J Street liberal pro-democratic party kind of people. That's what it seems like it's headed towards. So, Manar Adley, in the few minutes we have left here, you mentioned you were in Britain, and I know you were there working on a project. Would you like to share with our listeners what this is about and what we can be looking for from Mint Press News? I am producing a documentary about the Palestine Action Movement in Great Britain. And Palestine Action is this group of local, regular people that have come together to protest these Israeli weapons factories that are in their backyards in the United Kingdom. And so I visited the city of Manchester and Oldham where Elbit Systems, which is Israel's largest arms factory, is located. And they produce drones that are being used to bomb Gaza. They basically use Gaza as a testing field to ensure that the, the drones are working. And then, they, and then they use that as an example to sell these drones on the international market. And so these local community has just come together to protest these. And they're not just protesting, Mickey, in the definition of like how the United States activists protest. They are occupying these buildings, these factories. They're breaking down the windows. They are spray painting them. And they don't leave the buildings until the police come. And the thing with what's happening in the UK is that the police are not armed and the laws allow these people to get away with protesting and occupying these factories. 
And so what this has resulted in actually, and they've, they've been successful because of Palestine action, Elbit Systems shares have dropped by over 20%. Um, they've lost contracts with the British Ministry of Defense. They lost contracts worth over 280 million pounds between Elbit Systems and the government of the United Kingdom. All of this has resulted in Elbit Systems packing their bags and leaving these factories. And so I was there filming and documenting and following up with these activists to see how they were able to get away with this. And what it really represented was just how people can come together and shut down weapons manufacturers. I mean, that's really where it all comes down to. And a lot of these activists have gone to jail, but they're usually released within a couple of days and they face court and they're usually released. They don't face any charges. So it's really interesting how the laws work differently in the UK than in the United States. I remember I protested in front of General Dynamics here in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, where, by the way, their office was like in the middle of a neighborhood. They hide in the middle of these residential neighborhoods. And we were across the street singing songs with our street signs. That's how far we can go with protesting these weapons manufacturers in the United States, because as we know, the police here are heavily armed. They tend to shoot protesters. I witnessed the George Floyd protests here in Minneapolis, and I saw how peaceful protesters were tear gassed. They were shot at. Our police forces here in Minneapolis, they targeted journalists. They shot them in the eyes to make sure that they got blinded. They lost their eyeballs. And obviously the way George Floyd was killed was that he was basically choked to death by Derek Chauvin. So the police here are completely out of control. And so it is much more difficult for protesters to get away with something like what Palestine Action is getting away with. We don't see protesters here in the United States getting on the buildings and the rooftops of weapons manufacturers and breaking the windows and occupying them and donning the Palestine flag. They would be shot at, arrested, and probably face like solitary confinement for what they've done. Well, Minar Adley, you are founder, CEO, and editor-in-chief of MintPressNews.com. And so people can certainly find out more about you at MintPressNews.com. Anywhere else you'd like to tell the listeners here of the Project Censored Show how they can contact you or how they can follow your work, Minar Adley. Well, Mint Press is on all of the social media platforms. And so I think that's the best way to find our work. Of course, apart from coming to our website at MintPressNews.com. And we have several great podcasts one of them is called The Watchdog by Loki, and that one is on our YouTube channel. And then we have Mintcast, which is hosted by myself and Alan McLeod. We do that a couple times a month. And then also Lee Camp's The Most Censored News on our YouTube channel as well. So that's where you can find us. Well, Minar Adley, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule and for all the very important work you do for human rights and, of course, for enabling a free press. Thank you, Mickey. Up next on the Project Censored show, we welcome independent journalist Anne Garrison. We're going to be talking about how the U.S. has exploited ethnicity and clan to establish hegemony in the Horn of Africa. Stay with us. You give money to the bums on the corner with a sign bleeding from their gums. Talking about you don't support a crackhead. What you think happens to the money from your taxes? The government's an addict With a billion dollar a week Kill brown people habit And even if you ain't on the front line When master yell crunch time You right back at it Man, look at how you hustling backwards At the end of the year Add up what they subtracted 
Three out of 12 months, your salary pay for that madness. Madness is savage. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this segment of the program, we're honored to welcome independent journalist Ann Garrison, contributing editor to Black Agenda Report, contributor to The Gray Zone and Pacifica Radio. Ann Garrison is an award-winning journalist, someone that we've known at Project Censored for a long time. Ann writes specifically about U.S. involvement in Africa and is one of the most expert people that we know in the independent press, writing in great detail about U.S. involvement in Africa. And today, we're going to specifically be talking to Ann Garrison about how the U.S. has exploited ethnicity and clan to establish hegemony in the horn of Africa. And again, great thanks to Ann Garrison for joining us here today on the Project Censored Show. And welcome to the program. Thank you, Mickey. So last November, nine months after the outset of the U.S. proxy war with Russia and Ukraine, the U.S. lost a two-year proxy war with Ethiopia that cost hundreds of thousands of lives and displaced more than five million people, Ann Garrison writes. And also says that was a civil war in Ethiopia, commonly known as the Tigray War, in which the U.S. proxy was the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or TPLF. But few Americans even know that this war even happened. And spent most of last spring in Ethiopia and its neighbor, Eritrea, reporting on the Tigray War. And tell us about what's happening in this region and talk to our listeners in a way that doesn't presuppose that they have a great background in this topic. There are hundreds of thousands of people dead and over 5 million people displaced in a war that went on for two years. The U.S. was absolutely central to what happened, was backing its proxy force, the TPLF, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, in an aggressive war that began in November 2020. They attacked the federal army base, the Ethiopian army's base, and launched what I said was a two-year war. The best way to understand this in U.S. involvement is to understand that the U.S. exploited ethnicity here in order to dominate the Horn of Africa. It's a hugely geostrategic region. It sits right on the Red Sea, the Arabian Sea, the Indian Ocean. 40% of the world's oil passes through the waterways, through the Red Sea and the Straits of Hormuz. And the coast of Somalia has perhaps the largest untapped oil reserves in the world. Now, let's go back to Ethiopia. There are three countries sitting next to one another here, Ethiopia, Eritrea, and Somalia. And those three countries had in 2018 formed a regional alliance, regional cooperation, economic, trade, cultural. And this gave this region, which had been fraught with conflict, great hope, more than it had had in, in many years, but it was more independence than the U.S. was willing to tolerate. So in 2020, its proxy, the TPLF, which had been its proxy for many years, for decades, and which had dominated Ethiopia, holding one sham election after another. They had lost the election, but they attacked the government that was in power at that time launching this war. And as I said, within two years, half a million people were dead. Five million, more than five million people were displaced. And we saw similar numbers, almost two million dead in Iraq, six million refugees. This is an extraordinary occurrence that you're describing. 
extraordinary, and most Americans don't even know that it happened. CNN actually won an Emmy Award for reporting on impending genocide in Ethiopia. And Nimal Bugger, who did this impending genocide reporting, appeared on Democracy Now! a number of times. But unless a story like this is repeated over and over and over, and unless it appears at the top of the headlines, it rarely sinks in with people who aren't particularly interested in the region. As soon as this war started, as soon as the TPLF attacked the federal army, the hashtag Tigray genocide began to appear. And all those leading lights of the genocide industrial complex, what I call the genocide industrial complex, you've heard of the Holocaust industrial complex. Well, there's the genocide industrial complex, which the Holocaust industrial complex is a key part of. The genocide industrial complex exists to justify U.S. aggression. So this narrative of Tigray genocide, which CNN ultimately won an Emmy for reporting impending Tigray genocide, that meme appeared and immediately the people of the Horn were afraid that they were going to be the next Libya or the next Syria because the United States destroyed Libya. I don't even think it has a functioning government to this day, a unified central government, destroyed Libya and invaded and bombed Syria, still doing that on the pretense that it was stopping genocide. So when you suddenly hear and see the hashtag Tigray genocide and you hear talk about the international community, the international community's responsibility, there's every reason to fear that an intervention is imminent. So Throughout this two-year war, this Tigray genocide trope was repeated again and again, and it was taken to the United Nations with the idea that some sort of force could be either organized or condoned to intervene. According to international law, only the UN Security Council can approve such a thing. Usually the pattern is first there's censure on the UN Security Council, censure, then sanctions, then outright military intervention. But China and Russia blocked that every step of the way. They had meeting after meeting after meeting. China and Russia and the African countries said no. Then there were the usual wails that the UN Security Council has to be reformed because China and Russia keep stopping these interventions to, quote unquote, stop genocide. Who do the Western officials and press blame for the Ethiopian war? They were blaming the Ethiopian government. Also, the Tripartite Alliance, the Regional Cooperation Agreement between Ethiopia, Eritrea, and Somalia, that was more independence and regional cooperation than the U.S. was willing to tolerate. As I'm sure many of your listeners know, the U.S. can't tolerate anyone anywhere in the world raising an independent head. And this was happening in this extremely geostrategic part of the world. I've talked about the oil, the waterways. Somalia, that's neighboring Ethiopia. Somalia has five ports at the interface of Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. This might be a minor detour, but we can come back. Many in the U.S., of course, have heard Somalia because for a number of years ago, we had to hear all about the Somali pirates. Uh, alleged pirates, and we had to hear about the ship and the captain and the whole business that got the Hollywood treatment. If we go back long enough to to Somalia, I seem to recall uh, Black Hawk Down 
early 90s. Somalia has kind of been on the radar of U.S. audiences, but only in this sort of military entertainment complex style. But you're explaining in the background what, why the U.S. is so interested in this area. Ethiopia, Eritrea, Somalia. Ethiopia is the second most populous country in Africa. It had the fastest growing economy before this happened. It has built a huge prize, the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. It's arguable that a lot of this conflict has been about the emergence of an energy superpower here in the region with the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. It is the largest dam in Africa, the seventh largest in the world, and Ethiopia is contracting to sell energy downstream, and it has the potential to provide electricity throughout Ethiopia. One of the greatest challenges in Africa is electricity poverty. So the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam has great potential to lift the people of Ethiopia. Egypt isn't happy about it because there's a dispute over the Nile waters. Egypt depends on the Nile waters for the Aswan Dam. And 75% of the Nile waters are, are in Ethiopia, where they're actually the Abai River. They become the Nile when they go into Sudan and then to Egypt. I don't want to get too far away from the war, but there is an argument that another motive for the war was that Egypt wanted to cripple Ethiopia because it didn't want the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam to come online because they're still in this argument over Nile waters. And as you probably know, Israel likes to keep Egypt happy and the U.S. likes to keep Israel happy. We know that for sure, Anne Garrison. Why don't I go back to the genocide industrial complex and the Tigray genocide argument? This went on for two years. And part of the reason I went to Ethiopia was to witness what was happening in two regions, Amhara and Afar regions. The press would have had you believe that all the suffering was in Tigray, that the federal government was guilty of all kinds of atrocities in Tigray, and that the federal government was blocking aid to Tigray. So there was a famine. They kept saying there's a Tigray famine, there's a siege. Well, I went to witness what the TPLF had done when it invaded Amhara and Afar. And what I saw was horrible. I saw one IDP camp after another where people desperately needed food, water, medicine. They had lost everything. They were totally traumatized. And on the main artery going through Ethiopia, I saw one refugee camp after another. I visited only four of them, but the suffering was terrible in all of them. And I think we can assume it was in those all up and down that highway that was in the Amhara region. Then I went to the Afa region, which is inhabited primarily by desert nomads. It had also been invaded by the TPLF. And there's great mineral wealth at stake in Afar. There are always resources at stake in these conflicts. What I saw in Afar was equally horrible. Refugee camps everywhere. I spoke to four women who had run all the way from the top of the region to the city, the capital city of Samara, where I was staying. And one of them had run all the way, had lost a child along the way. There were four women in the house that I visited. Someone had let them stay in this house for a while. Only one had made it there with her husband. One had lost a child along the way and looked like she might be about to lose another child. The child was very sick. Also in Samara, this is the capital city in Afar, I went to a refugee camp where there were perhaps 45,000 people. And 
and went to the hospital nearby. The hospital had been overwhelmed first by soldiers who had been injured in the war and then by the IDPs who had fled the war. And when I was there, they were really afraid that a measles epidemic would sweep through the IDP camps. I heard after I left that someone had come through and vaccinated all the children so that that had been staved off. But there were, they said, three children dying every day in this refugee camp of 45,000 people because there was not adequate clean water. And we could see people carrying water from an obviously unsafe, unclean water source in jerry cans. Everywhere I went, the plumbing and the electricity was out. People were carrying water from wherever they could get it in jerry cans. And Garrison, we need to take a quick break here. And I want to come back and, and have you continue with your trip to Ethiopia and continue to tell us what you saw. I just wanted to remind our listeners, you're tuned to the Project Censored Show. I'm Mickey Huff, your host. We're speaking with independent journalist Anne Garrison about the U.S. in Africa. We were hearing about what was happening in Ethiopia. We're going to continue our conversation with Anne Garrison after this brief musical break. So please stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this segment, we're joined by independent journalist Anne Garrison. We're talking about how the U.S. has exploited ethnicity and clan to establish hegemony in the Horn of Africa. And before the break, Anne Garrison, you were talking about your trip to Ethiopia last year. And you mentioned an acronym a couple times, and I just wanted to get a clarification from you on that and then have you continue sharing what you saw when you were there. You said IDP and IDP camps. It's a way to antiseptic acronym, internally displaced persons, basically means internal refugees. Refugees mean people who have crossed a border to seek shelter, who have fled across a border to seek shelter. IDPs are people in camps within their own country still. And I saw IDP camps everywhere and Amhara and Afar. And the press was not reporting this. The press was saying that all the suffering was in Tigray. And Tigray was the worthy victim in Noam Chomsky and Ed Herman's manufacturing consent. They say that the U.S. foreign policy establishment will identify worthy victims whom they champion in order to achieve U.S. foreign policy objectives. They were trying to do that here with the Tigray People's Liberation Front and claiming that all the suffering was in Tigray. So I went to witness the suffering in Amhara and Afar, which, as I told you, was horrible, which was not being reported. It was just barely being reported. Like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International produced multiple reports about all the suffering in Tigray. Finally, they, they could not deny it in Amhara and Afar and had to do at least one report or two. But still, the overwhelming press and the overwhelming argument of the big international human rights organizations, which so often serve U.S. foreign policy objectives, was that all the suffering was in Tigray. And as I told you, they were arguing that there was a Tigray famine, that food aid was being blocked to Tigray. Well, in Afar, the main road going through Afar goes to Tigray. And when I was there, I saw one food convoy after another, World Food Program convoy 
big semi trucks on their way to Tigray. And I stopped and asked, is anybody stopping you? I talked to drivers. I said, is anybody stopping you from getting into Tigray? They all said no. But still, it was relentlessly reported that there was a famine and that these aid trucks were being blocked. So, Ann Garrison, you talk about the Ethiopian war. You write a lot about this. You also write about AFRICOM. Could you explain to our listeners about Eritrea, about AFRICOM? And you also write about Ethiopia being a place not formally colonized. But can you sketch some of this out? Can you talk a little bit about this 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 background? Ethiopia repelled Italian invaders in the Battle of Adwa. Uh, and therefore, it w- was the only country never formally colonized. Late 19th century. Late 19th century. The anniversary is coming up, and Ethiopians are hugely proud of the Battle of Adwa and having repelled the Italian invaders. However, I think it's safe to say that though Ethiopia was never formally colonized, it was neo-colonized by the U.S. during the nearly 30 years that the TPLF this group, I told you, that was the, the chosen, the worthy victims in this recent war, were in power. They served U.S. foreign policy objectives in the entire region, in Ethiopia, Eritrea, and Somalia. Those are the three main countries in the Horn, the ones bordering the Red Sea, the Indian Ocean. Ethiopia doesn't have immediate access to the sea, but it has access through Eritrea. And that was one of the issues. Eritrea sits on the Red Sea. And when Eritrea and Ethiopia restored relations, then Ethiopia had access to the Red Sea. Also, the alliance was between Ethiopia, Eritrea, and Somalia. That also gave Ethiopia access to the Somali coast. Eritrea is very important in this story. Eritrea is like the Cuba of Africa. I went to Eritrea and I loved it. It was so peaceful. It was so beautiful. And The city, the main city there, Asmara, that's the capital, is an Italian modernist classic. Italians did colonize Eritrea, and Asmara is a beautiful city. And one reason I admire the president is because he said, we will not change Asmara, the capital. We will not change downtown Asmara because it is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's an Italian architectural classic. Aside from that, Eritrea is so peaceful. I never saw anyone begging on the streets. I never saw anyone sleeping on the streets. I never clutched at my pocketbook. And everyone who actually goes to Eritrea says the same thing. It's a very poor country, but it's very egalitarian. It has a very egalitarian feel, and as a result, a very relaxed feel. You don't see huge displays of wealth or poverty. And it's developing, it's pursuing a step-by-step, steady-as-you-go development path. And many people say it's the only truly independent country in Africa because it is one of only two countries that do not collaborate with AFRICOM, the U.S.-Africa Command. And equally important, it does not have IMF or World Bank or foreign bank debt. And I asked why, and they said, because they never took it out. The neighboring countries, Ethiopia, And Somalia both suffer from IMF debt. If you read anything in the Western press, it will say Eritrea is the worst place in the world. They love it to compare it to North Korea. Say it's the North Korea of Africa. 
Some people say the Cuba of Africa because everybody's supposed to hate North Korea. The West will say it's the North Korea of Africa. And in, in one way, it now is. Eritrea helped Ethiopia during the Ethiopian War, the recent Ethiopian War. And as soon as the war started, actually the TPLF fired in the other direction at Eritrea. Eritrea was brought into the war. This enraged the West because Eritrea has particularly competent security forces. And because, as I said, they absolutely hate Eritrea. So the idea of Ethiopian Somalia being allied with this country, Eritrea, the Cuba of Africa, or as they like to say, North Korea of Africa, was really, really threatening to the West. They have tried to isolate Eritrea for decades unsuccessfully. And Eritrea just met with Sergei Lavrov about possibly using Eritrean ports on the Red Sea for various kinds of collaboration. They're glad to do business with who will do business with them. I had a long conversation with the chief development strategist, and they're accused of doing business with Russia and China. Well, he said, we'll do business with who is willing to do business with us. The hypocrisy is pretty blatant given the embargoes against Cuba. All the Western press is constantly excoriating Eritrea. They will never tell you that Eritrea is one of the two nations, along with Zimbabwe, that refuses to cooperate with AFRICOM, or that it has no IMF, World Bank, or other foreign debt. We saw what happened when Libya wouldn't cooperate with U.S. interests. Yes, we did. And that was supposed to be a genocide. That was a classic example of the stopping genocide narrative. If you remember at that time, Samantha Power, who is the queen of stopping genocide, now you can see her talking to Rachel Maddow, saying that Russia is guilty of genocide in Ukraine. Any place the U.S. is trying to undermine, Samantha Power will step up and say there's a genocide going on there and therefore the U.S. has to intervene. She was outraged when the UN Security Council refused to censure, sanction, or approve an intervention in Ethiopia. She was outraged that they did the same with regard to Syria. It was the genocide claim, and I think ultimately the chemical weapons claim, which has been thoroughly debunked by Aaron Maté and others. Anyway, it was a genocide claim that was used as an excuse to go bomb Syria. And also Yugoslavia, we should look back and remember that there was a claim, there was genocide going on in Yugoslavia, specifically in Srebrenica, and that was an excuse for U.S. and NATO to bomb Yugoslavia and bust it up. The danger here is that all these countries, that first the tripartite alliance will be broken apart, and then that each of these individual countries will also be broken up into pieces that ethnic groups will want to secede. And this is ongoing. This is ongoing. And particularly right now, there's a situation in Somalia. There is a secessionist state in Somalia, Somaliland. And in the National Defense Authorization Act of 2023, there is a section that says the U.S. will collaborate militarily with Somaliland, the secessionist state, directly. That is a blatant violation of Somalia's national sovereignty. If the U.S. wants to collaborate militarily with Somalia, that is up to the Somali state. But for it to go and establish a collaboration, it wants a military base, it wants a naval base in Berbera Port, which is in Somaliland, to establish a direct military relationship with Somaliland about that is a 
a blatant violation of Somalia's sovereignty. And it's just one of many, many U.S. violations of Somali sovereignty. The U.S. is bombing. It's constantly bombing, saying it's going after al-Shabaab. But I've been told again and again that no one believes this. And even if it were true, they've been doing it for so many years that it's a total failure. There are all kinds of commands in, in Somalia bombing al-Shabaab. But the last thing I should say, it's very important to understand about Somalia is that Somalia was trying to have a one-person, one-vote election. They have this clan system where various clans are represented in parliament, and it is outdated and corrupt. And they had a president, President Abdullahi Farmajo, hugely popular, and he was trying to establish, he and those behind him were trying to establish a one-person, one-vote system. And the United States, which tries to force this particular democratic form, one person, one vote democracy, down the throats of every other nation in the world, did everything it could to stop Somalia from having a one person, one vote election. Quite extraordinary. Those that are tuning in, this is independent journalist Anne Garrison, really a, a go-to source on U.S. and Africa. For a number of years, we've followed the work of Anne Garrison's so can you at the Black Agenda Report, also the Gray Zone. And Garrison, anywhere else you want to tell people where they can find your work, contact you, or follow the important things that you're doing and reporting on that get almost no mention in the U.S. corporate press? Those are my primary outlets. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I could say this on Pacifica Radio, but I also have a Patreon page, mm -hmm. Patreon and Garrison. And... I might go to Somalia. It's extremely dangerous, but I'm thinking about it anyway. So stay tuned for that. And Garrison, we'll definitely touch base with you later in the spring. We'll definitely want an update. Again, we're speaking with independent journalist Ann Garrison. We've been talking about U.S. intervention in the Horn of Africa. Ann Garrison, thanks so much for joining us today. And thank you for doing this incredibly important reporting because it really fills in uh, so many of the gaps here in the U.S. press, where most folks in the U.S., I don't think, have much of an understanding at all about what's going on in Africa or U.S. interest there with AFRICOM and so on. So thank you, Ann Garrison, for all of your great work. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Project Censored Show, established in 2010 by myself, along with Peter Phillips. I'm the executive producer, Mickey Huff, of this program. Also the host, Anthony Fest, our senior producer. Thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. We'll see you next time.